Hey Skin and welcome to Skin Things. You may notice this episode is a bit different to the previous ones. I launched a documentary series on Absolute Radio called The Blackness of Rock. Uh, what you're about to hear is an episode of that, but a podcast version, so I hope you like it. Enjoy. In episode one, I started off by talking to writer Jordana Elizabeth. Um, she's a writer, she's a musician. A lovely conversation I had with her. And of course, my great friend Gail Ann Dorsey played with lots of people, including, of course, famously David Bowie. Um, we got to share ideas and establish a foundation of the rock and race debate. This week, I wanted to focus on what I call the rock voice and some of the debates surrounding that. Whether it's Tina or Etta James or, of course, Aretha or further back with Nina Simone or Billie Holiday or Big Mama Thornton or even back at the very start with the blues queens Ma Rainey and Bessie Smith. There's this rock voice that I believe stems from gospel and the church with a heavy douse of blues. One interesting debate I found regarding the rock voice and rock music is between appropriation and appreciation. And one figure who I find fascinating is Dusty Springfield, which is why I discussed this with my friend, one of the leading music writers out there and co-writer of my own memoir, my great friend, Lucy O'Brien, who wrote a biography on Dusty. about Dusty Springfield's relationship with black music and rhythm and blues and soul? Her relationship with black music was very, very special. You know, right from the get-go, she absolutely loved her soul music. You know, it was quite interesting. There was this kind of white suburban convent girl from High Wycombe singing Bessie Smith, singing the blues when she was 12 years old. And then she talked about you know, when she was with her brother in the Springfields, a sort of kind of folk pop band, they went to America to, to record. And she says she never forgets standing in Times Square and hearing the exciters tell him that really blasting, yeah. you know, <laughs> R&B foot stomping anthem. And she thought, actually, I don't want to do this kind of folk country stuff. I want to sing soul. And then a bit later, she really got into Aretha Franklin. Yes. And she loved the new Motown sound that was coming through in the 60s. And she became a kind of unofficial ambassador for Motown in the UK. Very hard to find words to say about people who are as successful as these next three artists. And she and Dave Godin, who's a massive soul fanatic, big name on the Northern Soul scene, together they kind of co-hosted the first Motown tour in the UK. Amazing. And all these acts to the UK. And here's their new one, Stop, in the name of love. It has to be the Supreme! In terms of the blackness of rock and in terms of how we've been talking about those early years of the differences, I think the difference between like appreciation and appropriation in the 1950s and 60s, has, you know, it's been well discussed. And it's safe to say that most of the time it was the latter. But I think Dusty was a great kind of example of how to appreciate and how to actually be an ally to black music well before the word ally was kind of repurposed to what we used to talk about now. Would you say the same? I think that's a really, really good point because she was always really careful to acknowledge her friends, kind of bring her friends in, you know, whether it's Martha Reeves or, you know, she sang with the Supremes, she sang with Doris Troy and Madeleine Bell, and she always had them and she 
included them on her records. She had them on her shows. She had this couple of series on the BBC and she would always feature black artists. You know, the grittiness of like hanging out at the Brooklyn Theatre and when Motown had their acts, they were um, doing like three, four shows a day. And she was right there with them, sitting in the dressing room with them, doing backing vocals with them and just watching it and absorbing Yeah, no separation, yeah. And she was incredibly gracious. She kind of said, well, you know, these are the people that I am really inspired by. This is the music I'm really inspired by. And I'm kind of humble. <laughs> but it's interesting you say that about Dusty Springfield because, you know, at the time, you know, most of the time there was all of kind of ripping off of black artists, doing covers as their songs were getting into the chart just because doing well. A white artist would come along and cover that song, which would effectively kill the, the black person's song, the black artist's song. And the white artist's song would just shoot straight up and get to number one and get to do it. So many artists that did that, right? Yes. And I think what was great about Dusty was she relied on her own set of songwriters. She didn't kind of <laughs> nick other people's. She was very careful that way and making sure that she gave credit where credit was due. I mean, do you think that her support of black artists and her appreciation of black music actually stopped her being more successful in America? That's a really good point because she continued with her absolute love of soul music and she signed to Atlantic. Exactly, yeah, that was her favourite label with all her, Aretha was signed, all her amazing artists were signed to Atlantic. And she went out there, she recorded one of the classic albums, Dusty in Memphis. And, you know, now it's hailed as this, it's absolute classic, but at the time it was really underpromoted. The record company more or less buried it. And in America, they didn't know where to put her. So mm. she loved American music so much that she moved over to the States. She moved over mm. to LA in 1970. It was around that kind of blue-eyed soul thing where yeah. I think black artists were beginning to openly criticise white artists for appropriating their music, for basically um, diminishing their careers. I mean, I think at one point, Chrysalis Records, they had a policy where if a black artist came into their label with a song, that black artist was paid $3,000, which sounds like a lot of money, but it's going to last that artist a year. Whereas the white artists would get publishing. And so the white Mm -hmm. artists were able to continue to make records because they were getting money every couple of years, two, three years. They were getting money for the rest of their lives for their material. I think in contrast to Dusty Springfield, we can talk a little bit about Janis Joplin because there you have Dusty Springfield who's putting her foot down, appreciating music and also Mm -hmm. supporting the artists that she's singing with. And in contrast, and I think it's interesting because Janis Joplin was in my kind of vibe, and I know this is a big debate and I know this is a big argument, you know, that was much more appropriation because I didn't feel that there was much kind of positivity. It was much more like she was singing, trying to sing so much like a black person, like a kind of voice, a kind of grimy kind of voice, which she didn't kind of have, so she kind of ruined the voice in the end. Don't you think it's quite interesting, though, it's culture and it's community and connections. So basically, Mm. the thing that's interesting about Dusty is... These um, artists were her friends. She hung out with them, she partied with them, she drank with them, as well as singing with them. She was steeped in that whole culture and understood... She's part of the community. Yeah, Yeah. understood it from the inside out. And also really campaigned to get musicians playing properly in in the studio as well. You know, she was so hands-on. 
Um, and I think with Janice, I don't think she had quite that same connection with black artists. Mm. You know, her world was very much the white rock world. Right, yeah, she was coming from a very white middle class town, right? That was segregated. Yes, yes, exactly. In terms of my history, the, one of the singers that the minute you start singing, people like start, oh, have you checked out Janice Joplin? Have you checked out Janice Joplin? Which, of course, in my early days, I did. And I remember listening to Janice Joplin records, and I found very few that I liked for this one reason. I could hear her nodules grinding together, and I could hear how hard it was for her to sing in this voice, in this way. And it felt like she was trying to emulate James Brown or some of those early gospel-y, you know, Mahalia Jackson, these mm-hmm. early rock and roll singers. And that's probably my personal experience was that I found her really hard to listen to because I found that I could hear as a singer that she wasn't singing in the right way and she was hurting her voice. So people will say, used to say to me, oh, you don't like Janis Joplin. It's like, she's obviously done some incredible performances and there's a lot of heart and soul there and she had a really difficult time. And in terms of being a woman in a band, I mean, yeah. she had a very, very difficult journey. So I appreciate her and I think she's an incredible artist, but I always found her records difficult to listen to because of that. What happened uh, with Dusty in South Africa in 1964? Well, this was a real test case. I mean, at that point in the early 60s, for a white artist to go and play South Africa, it was expected that they would play to segregated audiences. And uh, segregation was just endemic. And Dusty, at that point, she had been really interested in the civil rights movement in America. She saw the gains that were being made there. And she felt really, really bad about playing to segregated audiences. So she said to her manager, look, you know, before I go out there, can you make sure that there's a clause in my contract that I will not perform to segregated audiences, that they've got to be black and white. And apparently a contract was drawn up, signed. She went over to South Africa and very early on she realised that No, that wasn't the case. She still had to perform um, in front of segregated audiences. So she refused. And then she was deported by the South African authorities. Wow. Um, And and that must, in those days, that must have been a really massive thing. I mean, most people would have just said, oh, just do it. You know, that's the way it is. That's the way it's done in South Africa. You know, it would have been so much easy for her to just continue the tour, like a lot of artists did. She really stuck her neck out and she was one of the first white British artists to do that. And she got so much criticism when she came back home. You know, they even had a debate about it in the Houses of Parliament, criticising her and saying that there was no place for politics as a performer, that really... She shouldn't meddle. That old old thing. Yes, exactly. That that old thing. It's incredible that politics and music have been intermingled and interjoined since the beginning of music. Yes. Since the beginning of old slave songs. And this idea that somehow when it comes to music, it's just supposed to be this fun thing. You know, we talk about politics and we talk about things that we're seeing with our own eyes, but we're supposed to stay out of of politics. And so... Yeah, Yeah. I can definitely relate to that. It's interesting. 
interesting, when I was growing up, I guess my first voice that I fell in love with was Blondie. And that was the first time I thought, ooh, I want to be on stage, I want to be like Blondie. But I wouldn't want to be like Blondie because obviously I don't look like Blondie. But when I first started singing, I sang a lot of jazz and I was always attracted to the jazz singers that really just went for it. And I guess they, they had that gospel inspiration, that gospel side. And the gospel side to your voice is something where you just let go. You just crying for the Lord, throwing yourself on the floor, singing your heart out, you know, so much love and expression of that. And I think when you think about voices, you know, those kind of great singers can sing anything, rock, soul, jazz. And that's how I came to think about talking to one of my favorite bands in the world. Um, And the voice of that band right now is Kimberly Davis. Um, She's an incredible artist in her own life. We also talked about her vocal academy school because she sings. Because what's interesting about that is how she connects the emotion of singing and the stagecraft as well. So here she is, Kimberly Davis, lead singer of Chic. I have a very special memory with be our family. Um, I remember my best friend at school, and she was like my best, best, best friend, Cal Walker. I remember there was one time we actually found out that we were distant cousins because we are related in terms of we had the same part of the same Jamaican family. I remember this time we were skipping arm in arm, going down the road, going, we are family. <laughs> so that song has like a special I love it. Yes, yes. <laughs> And we don't care what the audience is doing anyway. We're going to have our fun. We're going to have fun. And it looks like it. It looks like it. That's the impression that I get. And I think that that flows off the stage and into the audience. You see it spreading. All the kind of people that are trying to be all square and being hoity-toity. Oh, my God. Those are the funniest. They just have to release, right? They just release. What did you come for? You came to party. (laughs) Exactly. You came to have a good time. Just a couple more drinks and enjoy. I'm going to ask a selfish question for myself because your voice is fire, like <laughs> fire. And so where did that come from? I mean, like for me, a lot of phenomenal American singers, you know, you started off in church. How did that train your voice? I've been singing since I could talk. So, wow. you know, just talking and singing came very much hand in hand because the minute I started talking, I would sit in front of the TV and sing commercials, cartoons, you know, whatever music was on the radio, you know, and I was influenced by everyone. You know, mom was R&B, auntie was disco, grandma was gospel, daddy was jazz, you know, god sister was funkadelic. You know, everybody added what they needed to add as far as, you know, my musical knowledge. But singing was always something that I could do. That was God's gift to me. Um, I was singing professionally in a girl's group by the time I got to high school. You know, we were managed by full force and stuff Mm. like that. So that was already in high school. So, you know, me branching off and just doing my own thing was always something that I wanted to do. Did you ever have the kind of thing of like you have to sing gospel and you have to go out of it and be more secular or it was you always free? I sang in school in the gospel chorus and I sang in church in the gospel, you know, in, in the choirs or whatever church I belonged to at the time. So no, that was never a problem. And I knew secular music, but I knew also that whatever made me happy, whatever I can spread, you know, spreading, spreading that gift, you know, not only in church, that's just me. I know. And God is blessed. He's the one that blessed me with it. I'm going to share it. (laughs) I want to talk about your academy because we get to a certain point in our lives and we realize that we actually have a lot of knowledge, right? And you started off, uh, she sang's academy. 
Yes, yes. And it's awesome because people have been asking me to vocally coach for years. I realize now that I have so much. Not only do I have a lot to, to share, but I'm still applying it. So that means I'm still learning, you know, because I'm out there, you know, on tour all the time. And it's the best thing. I have students all over the globe. For me, it's the best thing because it's one-on-one and that's what I need. I love it. And the thing with me is... It's not just, you know, do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do. It's just not that. You know, no. it's a performance. I'm making sure you've got that together. Um, how to even walk on stage, how to hold a microphone, how to give it. Oh, my God. So important, you know, because yes. I, I, no, I work with some kids and I, the same thing. And I always say the difference between singing and playing an instrument is your voice is inside it's you. The instrument. It's a your spiritual voice thing. Yes. Your body, you know, if you get enough sleep, if you, get, you yes. don't get enough yes. sleep, if you drink yes. alcohol, all of these things. Mm. And it's something that comes inside of you that you have to put out. So the spiritual side of singing, a technical, you can learn if you have a voice, but the spiritual side of singing is yes. the most vital part of the whole idea if it you can't is. connect your emotions you have to the to voice convicted. Right? You have to be convicted like and even for me have, having been singing for so many years i've learned from other singers and how do you teach the rock singers because i'm doing this documentary at the moment called the blackness of rock so i was just saying how do you deal with some of the singers that have the rock voices how do you get that out of them yes the rock voice is a lot of power and it takes a lot of better breathing habits when yeah. you're singing rock, you know, because you don't want to lose your voice. It's your instrument, so you got to protect it. You got to know dynamics. Dynamics meaning you can go hard, but sometimes you can pull it back and it can still be a rock song because it's, it's basically singing with conviction. You're singing it and yeah. you need it. It's, it's your stage presence has a lot to do with it. You're not going to just stand there and sing a rock song. Am I right in thinking that, you know, that, that grind, that James Brand grind, you know, the thing that Janis Joplin was trying to do, you know, that comes from gospel, right? That's for me yes. when they're, they're at that point where they're kind of yes. doing the ad-libs and they're holding onto the chair, yes. you know, and yes. they're extreme and screaming, that right? That's, I think that's where the beginning of that voice came. This is my theory, right? Am I right? That's the, that's the Holy Ghost. Yes, that's what, you <laughs> that's what that is. Yeah. Absolutely. Because why? Like, again, it's, it's music sends you, you know, it's awesome. I love it. Who do you think has the greatest rock voice? Ooh, um, I love Tina. I just think she right? had the, the best, the strongest for this little girl, because that's what I used to get all the time. Where do you get all this power from? But it's just from that gospel, that gospel thing, you know, because when you're when you're singing with conviction, when you're thinking about how you've been blessed and all that stuff like that, you, you're, you're singing with all your might. So that's where all that power comes from. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? For me, it's Tina and Etta James. I think they're the, I agree. Right. To, to the greatest. Debates like this crop up again and again throughout black music history. Elvis Presley, who loved black music, was he an appreciator or was he an appropriator? Was punk rock a black invention? By the time Jimi Hendrix was in the band, everyone thought he was playing white music. What happened in the 80s? What happened to the blackness of rock? These are the questions we'll be looking into in the next few weeks. (laughs) 